0: open your legs any way that they can and my partner and I we were buddies and he just picked me up and I didn't know anything and so he slammed me down on my shoulders and my head hit the concrete on these tiny little gymnastics mat mats but my legs
1: directly on the concrete or like like thin 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 little gymnastic mats on concrete close enough
0: and so I was out but my legs didn't unlock so then he slammed me again And so I was out for like five minutes. Yo. And, and, uh,
1: nice job keeping your guard though. Right. Thanks everybody for swinging back to the Pohada podcast, where we talk about jujitsu with jujitsu people, very often black belts. As usual, check out the podcast socials at the Pohada podcast, as well as Pohada photography in the bio, you'll find links to the merch page and the Patreon account. This time around, I sit down with Andy Gron from the Academy, Minnesota HQ, we call it around here. He's a BJJ black belt, a judo black belt, an accomplished Muay Thai practitioner, basically a general martial arts nerd, and an accomplished coach. We talk about all those things in this episode with plenty of stories from traveling the world to meeting and taking a class with John Danaher many, many years ago and sustaining his very own traumatic brain injury. Before we jump in, I got to shout out the show sponsors. First is Way of the Tiger Soap Company. This stuff is by one of us, Julian from M Theory Martial Arts where I train. Do check it out Way of the Tiger Soap Company. That's exactly the handle on Instagram. You know, you do as much showering as I do, so might as well enjoy it with a good soap. And a shout-out to our second show sponsor, Hamel Jiu-Jitsu in Hamill, Minnesota, a relatively new, grassroots, passion-inspired gym where everyone is welcome. Expect to see Darren and his gym on the show's YouTube channel periodically and the social medias, and expect to see Hamel's weight room facility in the show's Patreon content. Do check that out. Links, of course, in the description. And without further ado, my conversation with Andy Gron and your double black belt. Yes. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Seems cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I uh it's hard and I wish I was a lot better at, at uh judo and jiu-jitsu, but uh I mean, I started training in 91 and and uh um I had no idea what I was in for. But um but yeah, man. I mean, it's uh, it opens a lot of doors around the world. It's really cool to be able to go and and train at different gyms all over the country and all over the world and you immediately can make friends and and uh get a workout in if you got jet lag and and uh it's a great way to open doors
1: man for sure so 91 that's you're like an og then i mean or, I or second generation <laughs> OG <laughs> or something old. like
0: that i'm pretty old <laughs> yeah yeah, but I started jujitsu in 2001, I would say, in earnest. Like, I was exposed to it. Was was and 91
1: he- a start in a different uh, art, or was that
0: we weren't really doing jujitsu in 91 mm-hmm. i mean this is pre-ufc right, right? I, that's like, what i was this wondering was like still okay. the days of the yellow pages and you would look in the yellow pages and you would see a really cool ad with like some bamboo and a dragon and you'd be <laughs> like oh they've got 10 style well that one has 12 styles yeah, yeah. Uh, which one's better i don't know and uh one of my best friends growing up went around and tried uh all the different he did um the Inner Truth School of Martial Arts, which was like ninjitsu, and he did karate at national karate, and and then we were out taking our senior pictures um, in high school, and we were down over in the Mill District in Minneapolis, like in the, there was a bunch of old abandoned warehouses, and and uh, he's like, hey, there's a martial arts gym over here. It's called the Minnesota Collie Group. Let's let's go check it out. And, and we went in, and there was a guy with a hood on. He had a bunch of gold necklaces and he be in broken nose and hood well up just just sweating. He was like in there shadow boxing. And my buddy is like, that's Rick Faye. Let's go um, talk to him about class.
1: I was going to guess Mr. And T from the, he looked, said. yeah. Right. The gold <laughs> necklaces and stuff
0: like he looked just mean and tough. Sure. And I had grown up uh, around a lot of fighting and, and, and violence in the late eighties and early nineties. And so I immediately, my radar was like, this dude can fight. He's tough. Um, and he was like oh you guys are interested in training we'll come back tonight for the 7 30 phase class and it was actually greg and uh so he taught the very first class that i ever took and you know we did elbows on the tie pads and i was hooked i was like this this is clearly all this other martial arts stuff that my friends have been doing you know i it was cool but i it I wasn't You know, I knew people that were good fighters that just fought in the street and we hadn't zero training, really. So, um, I could tell right away that the training method that they, that Rick and Greg were doing at the Collie group was street certified.
1: (laughs) Right. So you could feel the impact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was going to work,
0: you know, it, it was clear that, that, um, this worked uh, but we weren't doing any there was not really there was really limited um uh knowledge about jujitsu and and uh fighting it was you know it was like the this was ninety one, so uh I do remember that they had Paul Vunak come and he was a, a street fighting JKD practitioner who was known for testing his stuff. I don't know if you know about him, but...
1: That's a new one for me. No, He
0: would... You can look him up, but he's an old school JKD guy. And he was known for for uh, actually doing... He would go out to the bar and start fights and put his mouthpiece in and test out all <laughs> the techniques that they practiced. And... Um, God bless the 80s, man. Right? Yeah. And... Uh, so he taught and he taught a bunch of like bare knuckle street fighting stuff and 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 old school kind of stuff but you know it's legit street fighting stuff but he looked at us at one point and he goes I don't even do any of this stuff that I'm showing you guys. I do this stuff called Gracie Jiu-Jitsu with this guy named Hicks and Gracie and that's all I do now. I don't do anything else. And so he had already gone to the Gracie garage probably in the late 80s and and you know mm. tried to do whatever he did and did not work. So yeah that was sort of my first uh exposure to to there's other stuff out there but we were heavily you know greg was was uh heavily focused on muay thai he taught a uh class every friday at the Cali group that was um all thai boxing and only thai boxing all the other classes were were sort of blend classes but that class was we just kicked pads and and got super uh, exhausted and and uh me and my friends all really liked that uh, particular class and so we would go to that class a lot but um, we would also uh, watch all the boxing pay-per-views back then and you know we were super interested in all that so when the UFC came out we were like oh wow what is this you know and we got you know hooked on that stuff right away but we still you know there was still no real connection to jiu in Minnesota and then I would say around in '96, Greg started studying with with uh, Professor Pedro Sauer officially. And so prior to that, I guess we were doing some some shooto but it was really uh, rudimentary stuff. Like I actually got knocked out one time practicing <laughs> some shooto drill. We were we were inside closed guard, and the goal was the person has to open your legs any way that they can. And my partner and I we were buddies, and he just picked me up, and I didn't know anything. And so he slammed me down on my shoulders, and my head hit the concrete on these tiny little gymnastics mat
1: mats. But the my directly legs, on the concrete, or like, the like thin, thin thin little mats. gymnastic yeah. mats okay. on concrete, yeah, close enough.
0: And so I was out, but my legs didn't unlock. So then he slammed me again, and so I was out for like five minutes yo and and
1: uh nice job keeping your guard though
0: right and uh, <laughs> <laughs> first thing i remember is 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 adam Ahern is like hey stay down stay down man you were out you were out and then i wake up and i've got tunnel vision and i'm like i'm fine i'm, I'm kind of irritated and i'm supposed to teach the next class for dave leach who's Got to go to the. He was an MC at, at Flashbacks at the Mega Mall, and he's got to go to his his <laughs> night job. <laughs> so I'm covering the cl- the Muay Thai class. So I'm like, fine, I'm going to teach the class, and I'm like puking in the bathroom and like right, full concussion. headache and yeah. oh, it's it's bad. I I'm my uncle's a doctor, and and he's like, yeah, you got to go stay with your parents, and and they've got to wake you up every hour to make sure you're not slipping into a coma, and so. We do that, and then in the morning, my dad's like, "You're going to the doctor." And they bring me the doctor, and the doctor's like, ah, "You've definitely got a concussion, but we think you need a CAT scan." And they gave me the CAT scan, and they're like, "You need an MRI," and of course, you're in the MRI, and I like moved, so I was in the MRI for like 45 minutes, and they're like, "You're dehydrated. You have a you have an intracranial bleed, and you need to spend a night in the hospital." And mm. they can't like poke the the arteries or the, or the veins because I'm so dehydrated, they just keep collapsing. And so they try to poke me like five or six times and they're like, rate your pain on a scale of one to 10. I'm like, it's an eight. At this point I haven't had, you know, it's been like 24 hours of, right. of no, um, fluids or anything. And so they gave me Advil, which I promptly threw up. right <laughs> They finally get the IV in, they gave me some Demerol and I'm just like, yeah, there, there we just, go. right but I wake up in the middle of the night and my roommate is some old guy with dementia and he's like tapping my feet Beverly Beverly I need my clothes for church Beverly and I'm like oh what and they're like sir sir you have to lay back down The nurses come in and put him back Mm -hmm. in his bed and next time he's going through the cupboards (laughs) he's looking for his clothes for church and finally finally they strap him down but I don't know he might have been sleepwalking because in the morning he was totally normal but But thankfully, like the protocol, they gave me like a really good concussion protocol. I was in college at the time and they were like, no, you can't study. You basically have to stay home. You can't read. You can't really watch TV. You basically got to lay around in a dark room. You can like walk for a little bit, but you really can't do anything for like a month. And you can't get hit in the head ever again like this. This is super bad. Wow. And so... It kinda changed my approach to to martial arts after that and I, yeah. I started focusing a lot more on coaching and becoming more of a of a coach to our Thai boxing team and, and um I think I fought once more after that maybe. But how, but how
1: this happened how long after you began? Like what's the time? This was ninety five, so I started in ninety one. So I had in. my
0: first kickboxing fight in ninety four. I think I fought, or 93, I fought in Chicago in Muay Thai in 1993, and then I fought, the, the fights were like once a year in those times, so the next fights right. were in Canada in 94, I fought in Canada in 94, and then I got the TBI in 95, and um, so I re- that really made me reevaluate sparring and... and mm-hmm. And uh, getting hit in the head in general. Thankfully, yeah. well, and I then, think you know you look at all the research now about mm-hmm. concussions and brain injuries now, and, and we we take it a lot more seriously now than oh, yeah. than ever before. So yeah.
1: I remember getting a job, uh, two thousand thirteen or fourteen, doing some high school strength conditioning and getting hip to their concussion protocols and how they tested and what they knew about them and comparing it to my personal experience playing high school football, which wasn't too many years before right. that. And mm-hmm. it was dramatically different. Yeah, And we're talking 2003 for me and yeah. like 2012 for them. Like, I mean, it's reasonably recent or whatnot. Yeah. But then listening to their football coach, who is an old timer, he's yeah. like 70 years old now, talking about how they handled concussions playing football in the 70s and the 80s and stuff. I mean, what a growth of right. industry. And <laughs> even us,
0: like we were, we were trying to be smart about it but i think that we allowed a lot of um people getting hit in the head unnecessarily oh, over yeah. the years you know the mma realm that um when it first came out like it was when people started figuring out how to fight a lot of it was just they fought in practice yeah which makes sense on some level mm-hmm. but you know i don't know man like I lucked out, I think, for whatever reason. The doctors and the people that took care of me um, left me with the impression that like you can never get hit in the head again. Like this is seriously bad for you. Don't you know? Yeah. Be careful. And and I took that to heart, you know. And
1: uh, I think they were kind of ahead of the curve on somehow, that. Somehow, yeah, yeah. I
0: don't really know what I credit it just luck. Somebody somewhere knew something that yeah. uh, that came into contact with them. Right. um because the world was not that advanced back then even sure. even within our school you know um we we had a lot of uh you know it's this it's a similar path i think to what the rest of the world has experienced you know sure. we've always been i would say you know we weren't like i don't know if you know the stories about Militich and Team Quest and some of those old school MMA gyms we've mm-hmm. always been i would say a little bit ahead of the curve on on uh, how how we approach sparring but um but still, I you know, I look back to some of the sparring that happened and and dude, people got knocked out and people got hit hard and and yeah. uh, nowadays we're super careful about all that stuff and
1: well, yeah, uh, I mean, and imagine and, seeing a student in your class inside somebody's clo- closed guard on a right. Friday afternoon training session, pick them up, try to slam them like yeah, it's absolutely not. It just yeah. wouldn't allow it. No, no, right, no.' give uh, credit to you too for listening. Yeah, I'm a meathead. You're yeah. a version of a meathead, the martial arts version. Yeah. And generally, a doctor says, "Hey, that thing you love doing, don't do it anymore because yeah. it's bad well, for yeah. you." Yeah, I mean, we tend to just go. Not, All right, cool. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's um, it's been a journey, but uh, but yeah, now uh, I mean. Uh, it's so much better the training now the on, mm-hmm. on every level we're, we're, we're really we've really modernized I would say even in the past three years we've really really modernized our approach to and and my, my own approach to how I uh, design practice it's
1: what, what do you say the most recent changes in terms of as you say modernizing
0: Um Well, I've, I've, we've always been rooted in the Jake Kundo philosophy and, and, you know, letting people sort of absorb and use techniques that work for them. And, And there's been an emphasis on like the, you know, sparring or rolling and, and you, you have to work against resistance, uh, to know that, um, any specific technique or move that you do will actually work in or in a, um, I mean, that's, that's really my definition of confidence. It's like, you've done it, right. you Pressure can't tested. like tell, you can't tell yourself, you can't talk yourself up before your fight. If you've never sparred and be like, Oh, I've kicked the pads all the time and now I'm going to be able to fight. Um, so I've always been rooted in that JKD approach. I, I mean, I went to a sort of a hippie open school where the kids were supposed to you know, be coached more by the teachers and the teachers were supposed to be more like guides as opposed to, like, you know, filling your head full of facts. And so my my ideas about learning and coaching have always been rooted in that, but I've um, de- de- developed an interest in the science of ecological dynamics and motor learning and skill adaptation and skill acquisition over the past. I would, you know, since the pandemic, I had a lot of free time to, like, yeah research things and try to try to make things better I, you know in my head when we when i lost the ability to to coach people and to be involved in martial arts that that not being able to do it and and honestly teaching on zoom was awful mm-hmm. we were you know shrimping around on the floor and you know just it was it's not the same as working with a partner so I started to research and, and learn about all those topics on a deeper level and started talking to other experts in the field and, and listened to a lot of podcasts on it and read a lot yeah. of books on it. And and it's just refocused uh, what parts of the uh, practice we always had, um, I would say, because we're Jeet Kune Do rooted school, we've always had an ecological approach on some level, but now, um, with a deeper understanding of those principles, we've been able, I think, to design practices that people get better, faster, and have more fun, really. So that's been, over the past three years, the project.
1: Yeah, it seems so, like the the ecological thing is, is, in some sense, a version or a piece of what everybody's sort of always done. But they've yes. branded it, they've packaged it, and hyper-focused. And it's making people kind of realize, okay, this is a way of thinking. This is maybe its own it's, coaching philosophy. It's
0: deeper. I mean, it's deeper because we always did situational training, for example. Right. Right. But we didn't know why. We didn't, There wasn't really a why behind it. And it was everybody did the same situation. And if you look at – if you read about ecological dynamics and you read about the constraints-led approach – and you you start to develop a, a deeper understanding of all those principles, where you end up is that you have to create slices of the game for everybody uniquely, and that's hard. That's really that, you know, people say it's, you know, the coach, it feels sort of like when you first start hearing about it that the coach is sort of pointless or something, but really what the coach is supposed to do is create constraints for every single individual athlete at, at the best in the best case scenario and that's that's incredibly difficult you got you know i i had a student last summer that was probably close to 300 pounds who was missing the lower half of his leg and so now we're trying to create situationals that work for him right so that's a
1: very specific set right? of limitations
0: a- and you've got other people in the you might have somebody in the class who's you know a hundred and 20 pounds and 5'2", you know what I mean? So there's all these different sort of personality types and body types and, and previous training, and you've got to, uh, in your head, on the fly, come up with different slices of the game to uh, help them get better at the skill that they're practicing. So it really isn't what we always did, right? It's a lot more complex than that at the highest level, right? Obviously, you can look at traditional prescriptive coaching through the ecological lens too, right? And it it you know it has some value. I mean, we've done it; everybody does it. It's done, it came from somewhere, right?
1: But and it's it, accomplished what it's accomplished. Yeah, which is yeah. nothing to scoff at, right? Right. Yeah,
0: but a lot of us would say that people are good in spite of that, right? A lot of us are would say that uh, people get good. Um, because of the part of the training that is ecological and not because of the part where they're doing, you know, practicing perfect technique over and over again in a really repetitive fashion. So and the, the, and the sim- classic argument, when I, when I talk to mm-hmm. people about this, I always tell people, look, the Miami Dolphins stayed up all night doing cocaine before they won the Super Bowl for the, when they win 17-0. So maybe that's what we should do. <laughs> do right? what winners like, are doing. Right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose another way of thinking of it would be you know, you, you drill and you drill and you drill and you drill, but you also roll. Yeah. Like setting aside all the terminology and all the this yeah. and that. And you, okay, you drill stuff, but then you rolled. And,
0: and when you how and, it went in and, the roll
1: and how it got better was really what got you better is the and idea. And to be
0: honest, like all of the people that I know, uh, that I learned from when they trained, they didn't drill. They came in. What they did was they grabbed somebody less than them and they <laughs> tr- hit it in rolling. There's a story that I think Ishmael told me about Nino Shembri and and how he got good. And he was like, well, I'm only doing Oma Pilatus this month. I'm just going to kill everybody with Oma Pilatus. And that's what he did. And then he went to Armbar, and then he went to Triangle. And that's how he got as good as he did. And I think back to hearing that story now, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And we kind of did that ourselves, right? Like after Blue Belt, like most of us here didn't really drill – we just showed up and rolled and we would grab a white belt or a blue belt and look, you know, try to find, you know, certain moves.
1: Yeah. finding an op- opponent that you kind of know you're going to find the space to work on. Yeah. So you idea. can
0: make a few mistakes in the move, but you'll right. generally start to tighten it up on them. And so maybe there's a case for, for uh, wrapping a move a few times and then, and then go live. Yeah.
1: Pin it in the, in the yeah. neurons or whatever, and then yeah. go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, And then you work your way up the belt ranks, right? You pressure test whatever it is you're if working on. If you're good on. enough, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> my goal. friend
0: Rylan Lazarus in, in, in Hawaii says that that's how he does it. He'll, he'll start on a white belt and he'll try it on the white belts and then he'll try it on his blues and purples and browns and then, then his black belts and then he tries on black belts from other schools. And then sure. he knows that if he can do it on black belts from other schools that it's a high percentage thing.
1: So, and that makes a lot of sense to me too, right? I guess that's kind of intuitively how I've gone about stuff, just coming from a meathead background. Like you start with 10 pounds and then you work to 15 and then you work to 20. Yeah. So I was like, okay, this is a move I'm working on. I'm going to try it on somebody who has no idea. Yeah. Someone who has some idea and just kind of work your way up the ranks. I mean, just seemed intuitive to me. Yeah.
0: But one of the difficult things is, is with complete beginners, right? Because it's it can it it can feel overwhelming to them when when they're not given really precise really specific goals, but I think in the in the right culture when everyone is is um friendly and helpful and can kind of create the environment that they that gives them some you know earned success like I have white belts that. You know, fail and fail and fail and fail. And then I see them do it. They get it one time on another good white belt or a blue belt. And I'm like, that one time that you did that is worth way more than if we just sat here and practiced that over and over and over again for 20 minutes and then let you do it. Those, you maybe the failures get... give you the data yeah, to 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 scaffold the actual successes on top right. of.
1: Versus sort of, I guess a way of looking at it is you're pretending and pretending and pretending and drilling. Like I'm sort of pretending to do this and pretending to do this and pretending to do this. And then yeah. you go and hope that it then transfers over.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, in in my own personal experience, I I would if I ever drilled anything or went to a seminar, I would learn it that day. And then the forgetting would set in. And then two weeks later, I'll never remember what it was that we learned. I forgot almost everything I ever learned from a seminar and, and a lot of classes, too, that I've taken over the years um but uh the things that i that when we did you know like ishmael used to teach this way he would he would get us a pretty hard warm-up and then he would show us like a couple like things and then we would do live in in those situations and so we would try to hit and of course we would never hit it because our partner would know we were going to do it and they (laughs) would stop it but it would it would tend to stick better that way because we would have to fail at it essentially a bunch yeah. of times and then maybe you would get one or two successes but um but that that's I you know that style of training to me is a is a faster way to be skilled but people sort of have to learn how to accept failure and and that's you know that can be really difficult in the modern yeah. world where everything is you know people go to target and they the first thing they do in the parking lot is drive around so they don't have to get the extra steps to the door. And then if the door doesn't automatically open, they stand there like, oh, what am I doing? Oh.
1: Got to find the so, easy path.
0: Yeah, everybody wants the easy, easy, easy way to the top. And they, in, when it comes to jujitsu, they think they can download the matrix by drilling these techniques. And the coach is going to give them all the answers. And then they're going to be able to go out and submit everyone. And that's not how skill adapts in humans, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, yeah. So got a pressure test, and you got a pressure test for a long time.
0: Well, how did you learn how to ride a bike? Did your parents send you to bike riding summer camp? Right. Did they have you do drills for the left pedal before the right pedal, and mm-hmm. then we'll work on steering after you? No. Know. Right. You get on the bike, Fall and you off. fell off. Yep. And we all know that's how you do it.
1: You know, yeah, you realize, okay, that was too far. Do it
0: again. Don't go that far. Yeah. Like, my son, my, my wife is super paranoid about drowning, and so...
1: Seems reasonable.
0: Which is fair, right? Because yeah. it's a big cause of death of children. Mm-hmm. But she yeah. puts him in in like a life vest every time from when he was a little kid. She put him in a life vest. And I don't want to talk shit about her too bad. But sure. yeah. but she did this. And I was always like, oh, we, gotta, we can't. And I'm like, what? You're the mom. You get to decide. I'm not gonna. You know. Yeah, I respect yeah. that you have this fear and it makes you comfortable. But from, it took him from a, a pace
1: of love, right? Right. Yeah. It
0: took him a long time to learn how to swim, though. For sure. Because he was, his body was so used to the water wings and the life vests.
1: So yeah. Um, Suddenly you don't have that buoyancy and you got to work a little. Now more. you're
0: you have to basically fall underwater and. We ended up taking them to the FOSS school to learn how to swim, and I'm watching them train the little babies, like the one-and-a-half, two-year-olds, and you know what they do? Chuck them in. They chuck them in. <laughs> they do. Because I'm
1: assuming there's ingrained instincts. You know, yeah. We're not fish, but we're you know biological no, you close, beings. No, you'll close
0: your eyes, and you'll yep. hold your breath. You're not going to let the water go in your yep. lungs, even when you're a baby, right? Um and it's it's you know another example is kids learning nowadays when you're trying to teach a kid how to learn a bike they if you go to the bike shop they'll tell you don't use training wheels just take the pedals off or buy them a scoot when they're really young. yeah
1: those bikes where you, you kind of run as you yeah. ride it yeah so they
0: develop their own uh, sense of balance they're developing a relationship with the environment right so, are they,
1: those are better like that's considered better there's probably some nerd it's, a faster, yeah, it. it's a faster yeah it's a faster way
0: to be honest yeah. like. Uh, if you put training wheels on your kid's bike, your kid's going to take longer to learn how to ride a bike.
1: Yeah, you can lean way over and depend on that thing and be you, fine. Your body
0: doesn't. Your body develops the wrong information, sure. right? So this is one of the debates I have with some of the other coaches here about pad work because when you're doing pad work, your eyes are looking at the wrong information. That's not what you're going to hit in real life, right? In real life, you're going to hit someone in the face. Right. So I, I don't want to talk too much shit about pads but sure no but yeah, i like no. to i like to talk shit and debate people yeah let's, and, let's hear and, the stance and you know you're literally looking pads are like training wheels to be honest you know so now pads if i was the, king of the, the earth and i could and i could like as a fascist create and make everyone <laughs> do what i wanted them to do for striking right. they would do there would be pad work sure but i think people got to realize that when you're looking at the pad, you're, you're connecting your eye and your fist to the pad and not the person's body. And so if you're going to actually go into an MMA fight or a Thai boxing fight, kickboxing or boxing fight, you got to be careful with how much pad work and how much sparring and the and the ratio that you do. And, and then with that, as we've mentioned, the concussions are in there too because you can't be getting concussions in sparring. You will get concussed in fights. You will... You watch fighters that have been knocked out and eight-counted and concussed a lot. They're easier to get concussed and eight-counted when they fight. So, right. you know, there's a balance in there between all those different training modes that um, will help people adapt and, and become more uh, skilled at what we're trying to do.
1: So what's the training like, wheels slash tie pads equivalent for jujitsu? jitsu Drilling. That, no, Road drilling, right. yeah, 100%. Hand here, right. hand here, knee he goes there. Yeah.
0: I mean, it does make sense. Let's protect them from falling. They're beginners, and and yeah. you know, uh, especially on the knee slice pass, right? <laughs> Slow and right? controlled in the beginning right. is probably okay, right? Yeah, right. So it's it's challenging. I mean, the standing position for uh, from the ecological uh, approach, especially judo throws and and really big like ass over tea kettle moves, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that's hard to not drill. I, I would say, right? Like it's why because of the risk of injury, right? So, like if you've never done it, I don't care if you're a purple belt. Like you know, there's a lot of purple belts that have terrible takedowns, right? But if you've I'll never one of those, eventually. Right? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, like let's be honest, it's dangerous, yeah. right? You go with somebody your size and you try to do takedowns, like you tear your ACL, like in right. a heartbeat, it's gonna yeah. happen.
1: It's the landing so, part that gets you, not yeah. The, not the flying.
0: Yeah, so it's uh it's a real challenge, I think. There on that on that point when we're talking about the, the sort of training wheels aspect and whether or not it's rote repetition or drilling, but,
1: um, and judo more, more than jujitsu. I'm assuming. Well,
0: wrestling, I I think wrestling, we can, you know, the, you can, when you can grab the legs and you can, and, and you can front headlock and stuff like that. in wrestling like that, we can, we can create little games around, but like, a tighter a, closer a full on like uchimata like mm-hmm. i mean you can do can-can uchimata but but or or like ogoshi or haragoshi or like big hip to floor techniques um in a game like there's a risk of getting hurt there so you know when it comes from to these big standing techniques with a really high um risk of injury and you're and you're looking at trying to create a constraints based game. It's that's that's I don't know that anyone has mapped that out yet in the world. There's a guy named Cal Jones in Wales actually that that is um, a researcher in in ecological dynamics, and he's got some interesting games and stuff around judo. And there is definitely some judo stuff you can do uh, using constraints. But when it comes to like big big, uh, dangerous moves. Like it's, uh, you gotta, we gotta still fi- figure that out, I think. And, and for the time being, you know, we'll put the training wheels on stick when it comes the, to that, right? Stick with the wheels, yeah. You know?
1: And I, I was going to say, the judo more than all the rest of them, it seems, is even more steeped in rep it, rep it, rep it, rep it, rep it. Like, yeah. the stepping in for any of I those wonder about throws. that. I wonder
0: if Kano back in the day when, when judo was being developed, mm-hmm. like I wonder what the, the, you know, the historical, how much um, repetition, you know, I don't, I don't know w- the history of, of drilling and repetition exactly, but I wonder to what degree, because I think that all that stuff can only emerge under resistance. And I think that the ju- the idea of judo that starts jujitsu and the this modern approach to martial arts really starts a lot with, with kano. And, and Randori, right? So there's
1: maybe something in the roots of it and how the it approach might be was. It's pre, different.
0: pre Kano was probably some level of repetition and probably a lot of fake martial arts guys who, they probably weren't fake, but, but they were probably fighters who then, you know, you know, there's the people that can analyze what they did and there's the people who can do it and can't tell you exactly what they did. And, and there were probably a combination of fake people who just analyzed and made stuff up who, who would never do it. And then there was probably people who could do it but couldn't really analyze and break it down and say what they did. But he was one of the, I would say, pioneering people who could probably do both. And the techniques probably emerged from the Randori first, right? So I think the Gracies, too, probably were just rolling. To be honest, back in the day, those brothers were probably just on the mats rolling a lot. And the triangle choke emerged because they rolled a lot and somebody hit it and somebody refined it and refined sure. it and refined yeah. it. It didn't emerge because they drilled it a lot.
1: Right. Right. The drilling. Yeah. You can't drill something you don't know or that like doesn't exist. No, it you has can to stumble come. on something new and then break it yeah. down. Right. Yeah. But everybody has to stumble on it.
0: Right, like we all have to, we all have to experience that, right? But you know, the the coach can design, can put you close to where you're going to uncover it, and where your body is going to uh, adapt around, you know, the different um, skills of of grappling. But I, yeah, I I have to, I want to ask Pedro Sauer about their training and how much drilling and, you know, there's probably um uh i don't know um i'm struggling with with how to describe this the right way but there's probably some transfer to to like like i know a professor told me that they used to to choke two by fours with the gi on right and i know Bear yoshida was known for doing stuff like that and trying to develop like tougher bones and and you know there's Probably some transfer uh, to doing stuff like that on some level, or you know, it's like strength and conditioning type stuff, right? Like that transfers on some level to um, to sports and and skills.
1: Force is force. Mm-hmm. If my mm-hmm. my surfaces can withstand me applying more force yeah. to your surfaces, then I'm better yep. off. Yep. But
0: but the drilling stuff probably um, probably goes back to like you know, Korean martial arts and Jun Ri, to be honest, and the Karate Kid, you know, a lot of this, this, um, and, and, and a misinterpretation of Anders Ericsson's, uh, research in the book Peak as well, the 10,000 hour rule, but, but a lot of the modern martial arts, including um, the Gracies and jiu-jitsu, like martial arts as a, as its practice in America is, is uh, it has a huge debt to Jun-ri and the Karate and Taekwondo in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, they wanted to systematize everything and, and
1: uh, package it and sell it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, originally they want to know how to fight and they just, you know, this they, is, they were fighting on concrete and they, you know, the, the and, and and, you know, people in Minnesota are connected to that lineage man and and if they if those same guys were in this generation at the age they were then they would be doing exactly everything we're doing and some of them, some of them you know Pat Worley's is a, is a is a very good black
1: belt right yeah. um one of the they only just, guys I've had on here who legitimately started practicing on cement floors, like yeah, you're referencing. Right? Everybody else is whining about the small pads they had and was like, right. no, Pat didn't have pads at no. the beginning. And
0: they were bare knuckle like right. fighting in the 70s and 80s, but... But they were, you know, they were trying to organize it and turn it into a way of life and a business for them, and and all of us as martial arts uh, teachers that have careers doing it, it in America, it goes back to to Ri and and you know the Koreans are really good at at um, creating systems around that, you know, and cults to be honest too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, I think a lot of the the emphasis on rote repetition and drilling goes back to 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 that that genre, that flavor and genre of martial arts, right? So if you look at the mo- a lot of the modern like Gracie combatives and stuff, and and I don't know exactly what they do, so I shouldn't talk, but. Uh, uh, I Think that there's a you know, those that's a successful way to run a martial arts school is to have people come in and practice a move over and over again and then let them leave and feel confident. And most of them are never going to get into a fight or do a tournament anyway.
1: Yeah, so. Thank goodness, yeah.
0: <laughs> so, fine, you know, yeah. that's it helps them. They're moving around, they're moving their body, they're losing weight, they're meeting people, they're getting all these other great benefits. Like, yeah. let's do it. But Greg has never, um, Greg has always been like, no, we're. Teaching, I don't care if you're a soccer mom, you come to this place, we're going to teach you how to fight. And so all of, you know, all of Greg's students on all of his descendants that have schools around the Twin Cities, you're going to see that in them. Like, this is martial arts. It's not dance. You know, this isn't, you know, trivia night at the pub. We're, we're teaching people. This is, people can die. Right. You know, we have a student that, I tell this story Once in a while, she was like a homeless outreach worker, and she was in the middle of the day leaving the homeless shelter, and some dude came up behind her and grabbed her by the neck. She turned around and kneed him in the nuts a bunch of times, and also to guard him, and then went to her car. And I'm like, did you call the cops? And she's like, no, I feel like that was enough.
1: probably got the message, huh?
0: Yeah. And I'm like, "Ah, man, I feel like he might, you know, but in her mind, you know, that's her decision. And if she had gone to the, you know, I don't know what to say, like eyebrow, needle nose, earlock system. I don't know. (laughs) I'm trying to make up something fake so I don't denigrate another gym
1: or style. But honestly. The basket weaving of martial arts or something. Right. Like
0: she came here. She landed on this place. And we taught her enough how to actually defend herself. And if she didn't, she might be in the, you know, Dead or yeah. or maimed or worse, and right. so we've always had this this idea that what we're you know this is really serious, and we're actually teaching people how to fight. So everything we can do to achieve that goal is what we should do.
1: Well, and and having a false confidence based on right. things you've drilled or like weekend seminars you've maybe gone to, could, maybe you could argue is even more dangerous. Yeah, you know, like if I'm less worried about confronting these situations because oh, I know how to do this and it, this. It
0: can be. It's it's a trade off there because yeah. I think sometimes people get that sense of confidence. Like Greg tells this story, like there was a school in the Twin Cities called Chang Quan when I was when I was in high school, and they were the really esoteric, like internal martial arts, and it was a blend of eight different styles of kung fu and. And Greg did loss prevention at Target on Lake Street. And and one of the other loss prevention guys trained in that martial art. And he was telling all the other people at Target, all the the cart boys and cashiers, like, yeah, Greg, Greg's style is weak and it doesn't work. And I would just kill everyone with my death touch. And Greg was funny like, Bro, you can't say that. If you want to spar me, let's spar. Let's spar right now. And so he, you know, slapped the guy around, and uh, and everybody knew, right? Yeah. So it was but,
1: a little mini UFC but going on. My
0: here. point really is that the guy had this false sense that he could touch mm. someone and kill him, and that might have actually kept him out of a lot of fights, and and it might have, you know, sure. even though it was a false sense of confidence, yeah, he might have been. I don't, I don't know the guy, and yeah. but he might have been a total jerk, and this might have, uh. There's a sense in which even the fake martial arts gives people that false confidence, but it enhances their life because it makes them, you know, go home after the guy tried to pick a fight at the bar instead of fighting him. They were like, "No, I would just kill you." Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, glad you didn't. Yeah, right. Glad you know, went home. I know it was. I know it was fake. The guy probably would have knocked your your head off your shoulders, but right. you know. So
1: is there much of that around these days, Twin Cities? I have no idea. The, the, those the kind of like you say esoteric weird styles.
0: I have no idea. I'm sure it exists. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a, I have a friend who's a tattooer that was, um, in the I don't know late '90s and early 2000s, and he was he was still really involved in it. Um, but I mean, I'm sure it's around. Yet. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Just, but now, like, I mean, people watch the UFC and and MMA, and people know. You know, it's. It's you can just go on YouTube and and right. it's it's the evidence is clear yeah. you know you like it, my turn- son's friends like started in junior high um, just fighting each other basically you know they you know boys want right. to there's like an internal mm-hmm.
1: violence like you were saying about the Gracies yeah fifteen brothers know. they were fighting they want to know right. like
0: can I fight and can I you know so they would go in the in the bathroom and then they would put it on Snapchat and they would film each other yeah. fighting. Until the teachers found out. <laughs> but they were going on YouTube and just YouTubing, fighting and jujitsu and stuff and, and practicing in our basement. Yeah. And they would go in our basement and just fight each other and roll and make stuff up. And they never really trained here. But, but um, you know, they're actually not bad. Self-taught on YouTube. There's good stuff on YouTube. Yeah, no, yeah. You know, you can totally stumble self-taught. on some,
1: some crap, but, like, there's no. a lot of good no. free info out there. no.
0: And now a couple of them are training and doing jujitsu, and and uh, it's kind of cool to watch them because I'm like, man, you guys are are good, right? But you know, it's you know, it's cool, right? Like I'm I'm
1: a I'm a coach that
0: wants people to go on YouTube, and and even if it's yeah. slightly bad, like I don't, you know, you that'll come out in the wash in the sure. long run. You,
1: know? you, you would never tell you know high school or aspiring football players not to go play ball. No, and try formations, and tr- you know what I mean. Yeah, you go play football. Go do yeah. your thing. Same, yeah. same idea with the fighting. Huh? Yeah,
0: yeah. That football coach in in um, he's got a list of no's, right? Uh, what's his name? John Gallardi up in at St. John's. You know him? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Long time legend he's, guy. Yeah. He's
0: pretty famous for mm-hmm. for basically they just played football, right? Like they just got together and they didn't have pads and and yep. they didn't you know
1: work the skills of the sport.
0: Yeah, he just played the game a lot. The game trains the game, right That's the saying, right mm-hmm. So the game is probably not the best teacher to be honest but uh, but there's a you know I think there's an underemphasis sometimes in in sports on on uh, letting people explore and fail and try again and and right now I'm trying to focus on building a culture where that's the norm is like look we got to get in there, we gotta fall off the bike. You can't wear your life preserver preserver. You have to drown. Experience it. Yeah, you got to drown. How to drown and or near I, drown, yeah. I'm yeah. sure that happens though. Unfortunately, yeah. that's right. the balance I'm trying to strike, but right. You know, I'm trying to get there. You, you think so,
1: is there a, is there like an uh a like value to accelerating through a more ecological approach let's say as people gain more experience is there is what i'm saying is there value to day one rookie tell you what let's work on where to put hands let's do some basic instruction more than letting them i think that experts actually get
0: will benefit more because they have more of data they have more failures if i would tell you specifically how to move as an expert that will you'll either take it or you'll either use it or you won't versus day one day one beginners need to probably train with other day one beginners and get in there and you know, because we're teaching them how to fight and when they actually get into a fight, they're probably not getting into a fight with a trained person. They're gonna fight with someone who's moves crazy.
1: It's gonna be horsing around. Right. So may as well so, horse around. Yeah.
0: And that gives your body the data, right? And then you can analyze it later. And after you have a bunch of data and your experience then we can start having more debates about specific details and we can start honing in. And if you need to do a one or two reps on a specific sequence or techniques, then I think that's can be really useful. It's probably more useful right after you've failed at the problem. But, but I think experts, uh, will get more from any kind of rote repetitive drilling, uh, than beginners. So I think beginners need to get in there and just play the game, but that's a pretty big ask to be honest. But in my experience, I think people they all come to you with different uh existing backgrounds and bodies and personalities and for whatever reason that existing um those existing constraints essentially mm-hmm. they won't um be able they're they're not gonna like jujitsu you know, they don't want to do basket weaving or pub trivia. That's just their thing. And that's okay. So I want to let them expose them to a little bit of jujitsu. And if it's just not their thing, it's just not their thing. I can't, you know, there's nothing I can do. I can hide the real aspect of jujitsu by having them practice a specific sequence of moves, but they're going to have to roll at some point, And they're going to have to be okay with failing at rolling and tapping out right like that's really hard tapping out and and uh you know if you train long enough you're gonna have people who are less skilled than you tap you out sometimes and people that are way littler they're gonna catch you and and you have to be the kind of person that's okay with that if you're gonna be good at this sport
1: you know so i'm gonna shift this uh at what you can correlate it to a belt rank, if you like, and you can answer it relative to jujitsu or judo, maybe both. Um, a favorite belt or phase of your training, or dare I say, a a level you were at that was a game changer. Like when I hit purple belt, I really figured out and blah
0: blah blah. Pur- blah purple blah, belt, yeah, I think that was that was a big. I stopped. You know, around booboo, I was up going to classes mostly and I started rolling a lot. So I really felt my skills get better. I also, I also, um, when Solo Hibero's Jiu Jitsu University book came out, uh, it laid out um, a conceptual approach to survive and defend first, learn sweeps, then learn takedowns, then do submissions. And I'm like, oh, that gives me somewhat of a framework. And I don't, follow that framework exactly anymore. I do like right. the beginning focus on survival and and defense a little bit to begin with, but I got that book when I was like a forced right blue belt and so I, I had learned defense, but I hadn't really learned. I hadn't like had the courage to put myself in, put someone on my back and put somebody on mount. Um, so that was um, really key and I think I also took my first class with John Danaher in 2009 and so that totally blew my mind. Like there was jujitsu, and then there was like this whole like intricate other level of understanding that people have that it just, it was unreal that someone could understand jujitsu that deeply at that time. Um, so that was the belt that um, I was the funnest or the most interesting. I had a really rapid, I think skill development around that belt. And I started went and went to a bunch of tournaments and did really well. Not coincidental, I would assume, right? No, I think I had this. Not once I tightened up my defense, then I was like, "Oh yeah, I don't care. I'll do every. I'll pull guard. I don't. You need. You need. You guys aren't passing my guard." And sometimes there was some overconfidence there. True, but but generally I succeeded a lot um, because I had that conceptual framework in place better, and I kept honing it and honing
1: it. it. Seems like failures brought to you by overconfidence would be excellent teachers. Like failure is a good teacher anyhow, but when you you were really walking into it.
0: You can't learn without failing. It's a requirement. It's a biological requirement to learn. You can't, there's no learning. If everything's perfect, that's, you already know, right? If you just do something, you ride a bike, you ride a bike. You don't have to learn. Learning means something you can't do, which requires you to fail at it. So, you know, that was, that at that time... You know, I became more comfortable with like, all right, well, I'm gonna make myself vulnerable, and and I'm gonna work on things I'm not good at, and and I still have that approach to tra- to training. So,
1: expand on the Danaher thing. What was different, or what you took from it?
0: Man, that's hard to. I'm sure <laughs> say
1: exactly. Um, he can't. I
0: can just tell you the story. He can We went there for the ADCC trials because Jacob Volkman was competing, and I'm like. Greg, we're going to stay an extra day because Henzo has a really big school, has a lot of members of all types, and he also has good competitors. Um, and there's this teacher named John Danaher that I keep hearing about. And this is before he was, had any, there's no videos on YouTube or anything. And everyone who Still are- Still had hair. He did. It was the comb over spider trap, yeah. right? <laughs> but um, they keep talking about him and and how good his leg locks are. And so I want to get a private with leg locks. And so I called Hanzo's and they never answered answer. And then they finally answered. And I'm like, can I get it? And they were like, what belt are you? And I'm like, a blue belt. And they were like, well, no, you can do a class. He doesn't have time for privates. I'm, I think at the time he was probably doing privates all day and was booked already. So mm-hmm. we came in and... and uh, but
1: they asked your belt. So if you just said something fancier, you maybe They might have. Yeah, they might have.
0: Yeah. If I was like a, a sure. VIP, like a black belt who yeah. had you know that he would want to work kind of person right. he would want to work with maybe right but um the class is 12 30 we get there 12 15 sign the waiver and pay the fee and and we're sitting on the mat and there's like 60 people on the mat and about one o'clock the for the 12 30 class he's like all right guys he, he, you're here you're here you're here and you're here all right you got it go And then he sat down and me and Greg are like, uh, we're not used to that style of teaching and totally perplexed. And he actually came over and he, he, I think he recognized a new Greg. So he came over and kind of reviewed everything and corrected us, but that was it. Like you had to watch exactly what he was doing. And it was like a two minute demo on a very long sequence of very perfect, exquisite from standing to submission. And, and, um, I could still run through everything because it, it really struck me at the time. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know specifically, like, what about it. Um, it was just stuff that it was clear that it would actually all fit together in a sequence really well. And it would actually happen in the real live training environment. This is how it would look. Every detail was was perfect. So
1: It's funny how, like, kind of an esoteric experience like that can deliver such a strong message even if you can't quantify it.
0: Well, I'd never yeah. seen I'd never seen someone teach in that way. First mm-hmm. of all, like show up late, don't sit on the corner, don't help and be so notable in the kind of the online and in the in right. the juice the wasn't that big, but mm-hmm. like in the ether basically. Yep. Like he was the person at the top of the mountain that that had figured out leg locks and and jujitsu and and um
1: it's almost like the lore and the mythology behind like the the masters mm-hmm. of the like past.
0: Hickson has that too yeah, right yeah. And, and and um he also teaches really well like that as well with a with a heavily conceptual um mindset. But um but yeah I was like wow I want to be able to understand jujitsu with that level of understanding. So still trying.
1: (laughs) It seems like it's a continuous thing.
0: Yeah. Well, the lore around him was that he was teaching privates, you know, 12 hours a day and then studying video the rest of the time. So I think he's essentially dedicated more time to understanding and learning than anyone else. And that's why no one else is going to sacrifice their life like that. So, we're We're lucky in the jiu-jitsu community to have someone that's done that for us,
1: yeah, thanks for not getting married, John <laughs> right right right.
0: <laughs> having kids and yeah right. Like, do that real life stuff. yeah.
1: When did you hit uh black belt in jiu Jitsu? in
0: 2015?
1: So how many years?
0: So this is coming up on you know eight nine years,
1: I guess. since you become a black belt mm-hmm. how many years till black belt? I was 14 years
0: to black belt, I think. 14 years, yeah, of training.
1: How long were you training judo specifically?
0: I started judo in 2010. And I, so, but I, I with judo, I was training like once or twice a week. A lot of, most of the time, probably twice a week. Um, but... um but a not, you know, jujitsu was probably four or five times a week, right. sometimes six, and twice a day a lot. So, yeah.
1: supplementing but, the stand up and all that, and whatever was yeah. the logic but, behind the judo then.
0: But initially, I was doing judo twice a week, and yeah. and I was twice a week for for quite a while. Yeah. So you like judo? I like judo, and and you know, now I'm gonna now I'm gonna backpedal because what I like about it is it's like a little mini vacation back into time almost like when I, the first day that I went to martial arts in 1991 with Greg, like the the dojo is very much physically like a building from the eighties and nineties. The training is very much like that. And I can, I'm a black belt and, and they call me sensei Andy and they sometimes have me teach, but I can also kind of fade into the background and, and be a learner and experience what being a student is like too. Um, so, Which is
1: huge Those top three things a coach can do is continue to be a student right yeah and exp- and opinion. listen
0: to other students and and kind of be on that side of things i it's like a little mini vacation so uh, I love martial arts and so you know i like uh you know it's it's just like a trip back to childhood in a way so
1: I like the idea that your mini vacation is getting thrown and landing on the right. floor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, every time when I almost every time when I go on vacation, I try to find a jiu-jitsu gym to go train at, right, you know. Right. I haven't done
1: judo yet, but You take but, vacations from jobs, not martial
0: arts. Yeah, no, I man, I go I go to Paris, I'm going to the I'm going to the jujitsu school. If I go to New York, I'm going to the I'm going to Marcelo's or I'm going to Henzo's mm. or you know, um going to where the you know, yeah. Yeah, we went to we went to pencil gracie austin last year for like four days just for fun so train twice a day
1: that's that's the vacation <laughs> right yeah. more yeah. training than ever is the right? vacation right so, uh much wrestling you, you're a wrestling guy
0: um no but i did my son wrestled um and we, he wrestled for minneapolis parks and they had a bunch of dads coaching and some of the dads were not wrestlers and didn't know what they were talking about and I'm like well if these guys are coaches, like I can do, I can help these kids more. And so I volunteered for as a, a park board coach for uh, wrestling for something like five years. Very cool. So, in the pen, pand- I was the, I, the last time I was in the middle of the season when the pandemic hit. And so I don't know, I just never went back to it after that. Um, but I really liked it. Um, you, you see these kids coming in who, who, have zero experience. And the cool thing about wrestling is like it's, they go live and every practice they're it's, it's embedded in the sport and a lot of kids quit. uh, And I think coaching could be better, but you watch kids in three months go from, you know, kind of soft to being tough and being pretty good at wrestling. And that's pretty stimulating from a coaching perspective. Kids don't have the same preconceived notions that adults have, um, so they just think they're, they watch other kids do throw a headlock and they're like, oh, I'm throwing a headlock and they just go out and do it the next match. So, um, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's it's fun. It's cool. But I didn't, you know, I have, uh, only wrestling I have is, is wrestling in jujitsu with no shoes on. And, and I mean, we've, we've messed around a little bit in here, but, but, uh, yeah, I'm not a wrestler at all.
1: Yeah. No. Give me advice. So one of the the regular kind of closing questions I use here is, uh, and typically I'll say let's frame it per belt rank. You're going to give advice to a white belt in the broadest sense or whatever you got in mind, and then for a blue belt, and so on and so on. And feel free to distinguish between judo and jujitsu if you like.
0: All right. Advice. Have fun. Try to learn something new every time. And believe in your own believe in yourself. Believe that if you give effort, if you accept challenges, if you make mistakes, and you listen to feedback, that you're gonna you're gonna grow and get better. So I would say that for every belt. And then on the technical side, I my current thinking on white belts is they need to work on retaining their guard and survival. And I think that's you're gonna not have a lot of fun in jiu-jitsu if you cannot Maintain guard. Confirmed. Right.
1: <laughs> Expand um, on the survival for white belts in particular.
0: Just you're gonna you're gonna want to learn how to not get into worse and worse spots. So starting in pins and being able to survive inside of pins without getting a worse pin or submission hold happening. If you can go through practice and you can start inside of side control, mount, and back. And not get mounted, say, from side control or get to guard from mount or back. Um, That's your first goal. Those are your first goals, survival-wise.
1: Almost like, can you tread water? Like, I'm not out of the water, but I'm not drowning. Yeah. At least I can tread some water.
0: Yeah. That's going to make your journey fun because you don't want to be a purple belt. I mean, I've seen really good black belts. Go against competitive, like world champion blue belts, and they kind of forgot a bit of their defense. And they're not now they're ruminating and they're not having you know, they're having psychological problems because they lost that sense of defense. So I think all belts should always work on defense, but particularly white belts should work on those the guard retention, the survival aspect. I think when you become a blue belt. You want to continue to work on escaping bad, surviving and escaping. So if you can get out of um, any kind of a pin and get to a better spot. Uh, And also you want to start to develop a guard that you like. Then typically for white belts and blue belts, I'll say you have a choice here. You can do half guard. You can do uh, any kind of full guard. So that could be closed guard, it could be open guard, collar sleeve, De La Hiva. I don't care. You, cho- you, you play around and you, you choose an experiment. But make a distinction between half guard and, and full guard. You pick. Um, and then that purple, I would say you really want to um, continue to hone those skills of uh, sweeping and and submitting from the guard. And uh, once you get to purple, brown, and black, I think you want to start to put everything together into sequences. And at brown belt, you want to be able to take people down. Like starting at brown, you're really going to start to. Uh, um, now that you're, you know, everything else is in place, now's a good time to start doing some stand up. And I think, I think, by the way, I think Greg would n- would not agree with me on on all this stuff. Sure, um, yeah. he would want. He wants. Takedowns right away. Sure. He he wants to get people confident in the standing position,
1: right. white and blue. But
0: but I you know.
1: Well, what you're I, saying is in line with the order from the university from the book. book. Yeah. yeah,
0: and that's just because that's my experience. Right. Um, but um, by black belt, I think it's just about the micro details. Really, there's a very small difference between brown and black, and it's just the the refinement aspect. And I you know. And that's kind of why you
1: say that the drilling probably is more beneficial at that level because you're honed in so much on. Well, what on do we
0: mean by meetings? drilling? Too drilling Fair, is okay. a
1: really slippery word, and when I mm-hmm. say drilling, I mean you hit a few,
0: two or three reps maybe, on something you saw on Instagram or you saw at a tournament or you saw it happen in rolling or whatever. However, you saw it, you know, you might want to run through it a few times with the opportunity to make a few errors and mistakes and in a loose way but then you got to go try to find a way to incorporate that into a situation where there's full resistance. So, but judo, man, I'm really new in the judo black belt, um, realm. So I haven't had to really promote people. Um, but I'm, I'm watching how people are being promoted and, and really there's sort of two major uh, you know they sort of have novice and advanced at tournaments in judo. So the white, um, green, and yellow belts are the um, novice category. And if you're competing in judo, you could blow you could blow through that that novice category. You could probably become a brown belt, um, which is sanqiu, in like a year. So I don't have a good framework either for for like specific technical advice. Um, Mm -hmm. but, but one thing I would say is for white belts that you should focus on foot techniques and falling from foot techniques, as opposed to repetitions of, uh, uh, roll falling. So a game that I, I like to do with, uh, beginner judo students is we just foot sweep each other back and forth. And their foot sweeps are not good. But the falling from a foot sweep, I can start to, I'm going to be attacked randomly in Randori. And I have to respond in a, you know, I have to let my, I have to take my fall. And the way I'm going to get better at falling from a random attack is by having random attacks happen and fall. And so a safe kind of easy way to get used to that is from doing Ashiwaza, which means foot techniques. And, um, So that is sort of like the guard retention equivalent that I would say for beginners in judo. And that's a great way to develop your skill at staying safe in the standing position and falling. Um, but you're probably also going to want, you know, when you, when you get to that, you know, yellow and green, you're going to want to have a a nice hip to floor technique, you know, like Harai Goshi, ogoshi. You're going to want something big that you, you can have in your arsenal. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't feel confident or, or knowledgeable enough to say, you know, what the difference is um, in between, you know, Sankyu and Shodan in judo. Um, but it's probably pretty similar to to Black Belt, right? It's there's probably some refinement in the minute details there. But you know, a lot of a lot of people in judo will will they have what's called batsugan. So it's a instantaneous promotion. So they can go to a tournament and if you're a brown belt and you going to get promoted if you can throw a bunch of higher ranked people, you can get promoted that way. So they you know there's a little different approach in in judo than than BJJ. A
1: little bit but, more steeped in kind of what we would call traditional martial arts maybe.
0: Yeah, depending on where you're at in the world but hmm. but um, You know, it's, you know, it's a, you can get it faster. You know, if you have the skill and you go to tournament, you can win. You can, you know, there's time requirements, but you can get a black belt in, I think, five years if you're skilled. Hmm. You can, you can, I I believe you can, you might even be able to get a brown belt in a year, something like that. If you're going to tournaments and winning,
1: right? you know, which... You kind know, of merit based, like all right, you're winning. Let's yeah, let's and cool. I
0: mean it makes you know it makes sense. I think it makes sense in jujitsu. They they kind of have the same thing now with the time requirements and IBJJF. But you know, if you're you know, you should go up, right? If you're you needed a higher challenge, you that's you know. You're competing, you're winning, you should go up. So it was like high
1: school football teams. You you've you've won the state championship for three double A or whatever ten years in a row. Let's let's step it up. Yeah. Same sort of idea. Like yeah. how many times you gotta prove it.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. Uh any any comparison or contrasting in terms of coaching philosophy or approach between like you and Danny, let's say? cuz you you came into a lot of experience and a lot of a lot of students under your belt and then you're under the role of a student on that side. I mean, he's an encyclopedia of yeah, kind of why
0: detail and techniques and 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 um you know, he honed my technique on a lot of things and I didn't he told me he was like, "You know, okay, well, I want you to do showdown now." and I'm like, "What? I don't I don't, I don't know that I'm mm-hmm. Um but um He's been doing it since he's five years old and, and, um, he's just doing the best that he knows how to do. And, and, um, you know, I've watched some of the M theory guys throw and, and, pull out judo in tournaments now and I I can see the influence right like it's it's legit you recognize you know? they've
1: taken the same abuse
0: yeah absolutely <laughs> right like it's he's like I said he's an encyclopedia of mm-hmm. of knowledge with that that many years of training so um There's something but I don't particularly- know right now I'm I'm trying to I'm really trying to to apply the constraints led approach when they let me teach at the judo dojo I'm really any opportunity I can, I'm trying to find a way to use constraints to to teach judo.
1: Which which one, by the way? Midway judo. Yeah, yeah. Figure we get it set into the mics. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Shout them out. Yeah. You got a favorite throw? Yeah. Or a well, big, I have okay. Uh, what I throw? want
0: to be my favorite throw is Tayatoshi. <laughs> but my actual favorite throw is tomoe nage.
1: Let's so. explain both of those for the folks. Taiotoshi
0: means body drop, and you're basically you're turning your back, and you you step with sort of a straddle stance in front of their shin and you drive them
1: over uh, to the mat. Like a rotation kind yep. of deal? I've taken one of those from a judo guy, a friend of mine, and it's not uh, Yeah, not Sensei
0: fun. Danny has a really good one. It, I think Uchimata is probably still his favorite throw, but I, I believe at one point it was Tayatoshi. Sure. He, he can he can generate a lot of force on Taiyo. Um But Tomo Anage is circle throw. And sometimes called the Captain Kirk because there's a clip from Star yep. Trek where he's yep. like, you have to use your energy against you. And it's very common in jiu-jitsu. It works in, in BJJ. And if you fail at it, you're in the guard. But basically, yeah. you you take a standard grip and you put your leg in the stomach and you fall to your back and throw them um, ass over tea kettle onto their back. Yeah. So i and done so much of that from the guard over the years that in judo... Um, I I can I can land it in judo. So it's the one that I'm most confident in in, in Randori and stuff. But yeah. I don't I wanna make Taitoshi my favorite throw, so I have two.
1: <laughs> I well, I respect the answer. Here's here's what I am good at, but here's where I'm trying to go. I like yeah. That. Uh favorite place fighting and coaching has taken you in the world. Thailand?
0: Thailand, yeah, man. I've been to Thailand like ten times, and wow. I learned to speak Thai and and trained there. and And uh, I man, I love Thai culture, and and I love the weather, and the food, and the people. And I haven't been there in 10, 10 11 years now. Uh, but when I get older, I think I'll probably try to spend some time in my retirement hanging out over there. I really like it. And, Very cool.
1: Be yeah. sitting on a beach in Florida—that's better yeah, re- retirement I mean, you know,
0: plan. It's a really long ass flight, but uh, man, it's, it's cool, man. It's, it's a different, they're more relaxed. They don't, they live for now. They don't live for the future or the past. They live in the now and they got problems too. They're not, it's not a perfect society, but, but compared to Western society, they've, you know, they don't face a lot of the same stresses and, and problems that we have.
1: All right. What else? Anything? uh i like the open follow edit. me on yep. follow me on social media there we go. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: andy.ground on instagram hit me up you can dm me or you can uh email me or whatever
1: word up so thanks brother yeah you're welcome thanks everyone for tuning into another episode of the pohada podcast and hey if you're a regular listener head on over to the pohada podcast on instagram where amongst the ridiculous memes you'll find a link to the merch shop and be able to keep up with the disorganized going-ons of the show and hey before you go here's a little preview of an upcoming episode my personal goals is i really like i have a soft spot for the youth program um i know that like jujitsu is pretty big in this area already but it could be bigger um but muay thai and kickboxing are, are so so small in the midwest and and, in the twin cities specifically i would love for that to continue to grow um and be able to provide more opportunities for kids to compete and um maybe travel and and actually do well like you know 10 years ago 15 20 years ago like the the people that were fighting professionally like started as adults now they're starting as kids you know so like Um, the youth program has to grow in order to, to feed that.